there were a single question to frame our experience together over the next little while, it might be this one. Where is your heart? Just kind of another way of asking, what do you love? Which may be put differently, what do you worship? Catechisms have clear and concise answers to such sorts of questions. The Heidelberg puts it like this, that I rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to God for every good thing humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor God with all my heart. In short, that I give up anything rather than go against God's will in any way. I'm not going to argue with that, but I sometimes wonder, does that really embrace the complexity of our lives and the nuances of our days? We'll, we'll, no, we're not going to have idols in our living rooms the way we think of such things, but we do offer our hearts' affections and the allegiances of our lives to so many things, which is why I'm wondering, where's your heart? What do you love? N.T. Wright, in a book titled Surprised by Hope, takes into account the complexities. When human beings give their heartfelt allegiance to and worship that which is not God, they progressively cease to reflect the image of God. One of the primary laws of human life is that you become like what you worship. What's more, you reflect what you worship not only to the object itself, but also outward to the world around. Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of money and increasingly treat other people as creditors, debtors, partners, or customers rather than as human beings. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of sex, their preferences, their practices, their past histories, and increasingly treat other people as actual or potential sex objects. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of power and treat other people as either collaborators, competitors, or pawns. These and many other forms of idolatry combine in a thousand ways, all of them damaging to the image-bearing quality of the people concerned and of those whose lives they touch. Which is why I'm wondering, where's your heart? What do you love? We'll give our hearts allegiance to so many things that only then work back on us, calling us into service Last uh, couple of weeks, we've been gathering around uh, Old Testament stories of people for whom it might be said, there is no way. Uh, we, we say it often. We say it flippantly and casually when the stakes aren't very high. There's no way you'll ever ask her out. There's no way you'll eat the whole pizza. There's no way. We say it less frequently, but feel it more deeply when the stakes are raised and our hearts are on the line, or we look out at the world and we think, there's no way another gun goes off this time in Oakland. There's no way. Protests rage in Russia and violence consumes Iran. There's no way. Storms pound southern Florida, having already left Puerto Rico and the DR in their wake. There's no way our world will ever give way to a brighter, more beautiful, more peaceful future. There's just no way. So we've been gathering our hearts around these stories from the Old Testament today. 
It's the book of Exodus, just to get you to the story. God showed up to a guy named Abram, said, I'll be your God, you'll be my people. Abram had a boy who nearly died, who had a son who wrestled with God, who had a kid whose brothers left him in the wilderness before some bandits brought him to Egypt. He found himself in prison, rose to power, ended up taking care of the family that had left him for dead and his entire country. They stayed in Egypt for a long time. It went so well for them there, but then a new Pharaoh took over and things got bad, things got hard, and God wasn't good with that, so he called the guy Moses. That's where we enter the story. Keep in mind our question, where's your heart? Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the Israelites to turn back and camp at Pi-Hahiroth between Migdal and the sea in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall camp opposite it by the sea. Pharaoh will say, they're wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has closed in on them. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them. And I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and his army. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the minds of Pharaoh and his officials were changed toward the people. They said to one another, what have we done Letting Israel leave our service, he had his chariot made ready, and he took his army. He took 600 picked chariots and all the chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he pursued them as the Israelites were going out boldly. The Egyptians pursued them, and they overtook them by the sea, camped at Pihahiroth in front of Baal-Zephon. As Pharaoh drew near and the Israelites looked back, they saw the Egyptians advancing on them. In great fear, they cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What is this that you've done bringing us out of Egypt? Isn't this the very thing we told you in Egypt? Leave us alone and let us serve the Egyptians. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said, do not be afraid. Stand firm and see the deliverance that the Lord will accomplish for you today. The Egyptians that you see here today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. And you only have to keep still. The Lord said to Moses, why do you cry out to me? Tell the Israelites to go forward. Only lift up your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it, that the Israelites might walk into the sea on dry ground. I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will go in after them, Pharaoh and his horses and his chariots and his chariot drivers, and I will gain glory for myself over Pharaoh and his army, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I gain glory for myself over Pharaoh, his chariots and his chariot drivers." The angel of God, who was in front of the army of Israel, 
moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud that was in front of them went and took its place behind them. It came between the army of Egypt and the army of Israel. The cloud was there with the darkness, and it lit up the night. And the one did not come near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night. And the Israelites went into the sea on dry ground. The waters were divided, and, and, and Pharaoh and his armies went in after them. And at the morning watch, the Lord in the pillar of fire in the cloud looked down on the Egyptians and turned them into a panic. The Lord clogged the chariot wheels of the Egyptians so that they could not run. And the, and the Egyptians said, let us flee from the Israelites, for the Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters come back on the Egyptians. And Moses stretched out his hand, and the waters returned to their normal depths. The waters returned over the Egyptians as they fled, and the Lord tossed them into the sea, Pharaoh and his army and his chariots and his chariot drivers, and not one of them remained. They were all covered. And the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. So the Lord saved Israel that day from the Egyptians, and the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And the Israelites saw the great thing that God had done for them. So they feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's Exodus 14. What a story. What a fascinating story full of so many intriguing details. The, the seas parted and the Israelites walked through on dry ground, the waters forming a wall for them on their right and on their left. We could pay attention to that for a while. Or, or what do you make of the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart? And what do you do if not one of them remained? The Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. So many details we could pay attention to, voices to listen to, but I'm afraid if we only spent our time there, we'd miss the loudest voice speaking to us in Exodus 14, wondering with us, where is your heart? What do you love? What do you worship? From beginning to end, this Exodus 14 story, and you could really argue the entirety of the New Testament, asks us, begs us to answer, where's your heart? What do you love? Who do you worship? It starts like this, that the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord, and it ends like this, so they feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. The question is, where's your heart? Because N.T. Wright is onto it. We so quickly and so easily give our hearts allegiance to so many other things. Money, power, sex, drugs, alcohol, celebrities, sports stars, sports themselves, music, musicians, anything. We'll turn them all into gods. And you think I'm 
being a little dramatic. Well, how about, how about let's, money? Let's take money, for example. We think of it as useful, and I can get the things I want and maybe buy the things I need. In, in ancient Israel, it was called mammon, the god mammon. We can change the name. The reality doesn't change. Sex, sex, something to satisfy, maybe to, to procreate. We, we just think of it in primal terms. They refer to the goddess Aphrodites. You can change the name. You don't change the reality. And I could go on. We do not live in a neutral universe as if objects are just there to be used, but rather when our hearts reside in them, when our hearts' allegiance rests on them, they work back on us, calling us into their service. So where's your heart? What do you love? What do you worship? How did Wright put that? Those who worship money increasingly define themselves in terms of money. Those who worship sex define themselves in terms of sex. Those who worship power define themselves in terms of power. Where's your heart? What do you worship? This Exodus 14 story in the entirety of the Old Testament is one large announcement. God, God, turn your hearts to God. Offer your heart's affection to God. We live in a, what we would call a monotheistic culture. We think there's one God. They lived in a polytheistic world. There were many gods. And God was establishing himself as Lord. That the Egyptians shall know that I am Lord. So they feared the Lord. So they, they feared the Lord and believed in the Lord. Exodus 14 in the entirety of the Old Testament is establishing God as the Lord. Despite the fact that there are so many options, so many things vying for our allegiance and our affections, so just take some time when you have it later today or sometime this week and ask yourself the question, where is my heart? What do I love? And is your affection in right relationship to the thing you love? Or have you given it a power it can't hold? so that it works back on you and requires your service. You probably roll your eyes now when I tell you again about my rejections from med school or my being cut from the basketball team at Hope College. I haven't told you as much about the girl I dated for two years in college before Kristen. And each of these things, she broke up with me, by the way. Devastating. Each of these things on their own isn't that big of a deal. Being rejected by med school is not saying, John, you have no professional future. Getting cut from the basketball team is not saying, John, you can't exercise. A girl breaking up with you is not a person saying, you'll never be with anyone. But I had given so much of myself to these things. My heart's affection rested in them. And when they were taken from me, I was crushed and devastated. So where's your heart? What do you love? Exodus 14 is an announcement. They shall know that I am the Lord. And here's a second little observation I want you to notice. There's this odd conflation in this Exodus 14 story between God's action and Moses' doing. God is accomplishing the action. God is initiating. God is making things happen. But Moses is there doing things too. God's the one acting. Moses is the one doing. 
It's as if Moses becomes, and I'm going to use this language carefully, Moses becomes a visible sign of an invisible grace. Moses becomes a physical embodiment of the invisible action of God. Uh, verse, let's see, verse 9. No, 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 it's, it's verse, I can't find the verse. So, so the Israelites feared the Lord and cried out to the Lord and said to Moses, you see the conflation between God and Moses. Or then uh, later on, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind. You see what Mo Moses is doing? God is acting. Or later on, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord tossed the Egyptians into the sea. Moses doing, God acting. It's as if Moses becomes a physical expression of the invisible action of God. Because they wanted to go back to Egypt. They wanted to return to the place from which they had come. Let us serve the Egyptians. Leave us alone. It would be better for us to serve the Egyptians. The word for serve is worship. It would be better for us to worship the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And someone had to say, God, God. Not just so they'd have it right in the world, but because God was for them. God was good. All of these other gods they were worshiping were only interested in satisfying themselves. This God is for the world. Someone had to stand up and say, God. And the entirety of the Old Testament is this mixed up, messed up, blurried, hazy witness to the one true God, the people stumbling and tripping and fall falling all over themselves and people wondering, is the God of Israel God? Until finally, in the fullness of time, God sends his own son, Jesus Christ, the true and faithful witness to the one true and faithful God, Jesus Christ, who showed... God establishes himself as God, and Jesus shows us the way to God. He's the faithful witness. Moses, is Moses an archetype of Christ in this story, pointing to God? And I'm wondering now, if a couple of us here, wherever you are, on the corner of Ninth and College, if you show up here at any time, if we couldn't point to God, witness to God, in a world full of options, a witness a visible sign of an invisible grace, not just so that people get it right, but because every other version will lead them astray. And God is for you. God is for us. God is for the world. Someone needs to stand up and say, God. So they feared the Lord and believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses, or can I say, and in his servant Jesus. Jesus is the faithful witness. Though our witness to a watching world is blurried and hazy, so often conflated with the other gods, if you think I'm making too much of it, how often is the church used for a political end? There's a political god. So often mixed up with money, there's a god of money. And yet Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, and we point to him the visible sign of the invisible grace for a watching world wondering, God, is there a God in this crazy, mixed up, messed up world? So this past week, I was a part of a retreat of some ministry leaders. I'm sharing this story with permission. How about I'm going to blur the details so you're not exactly sure who I'm talking about. We were together in a, a retreat with a bunch of ministry leaders and someone asked us to pair up and consider the question, 
what has been one of the hardest experiences you faced in life? And maybe some reflections you're willing to offer from it. So I was partnered with this 30-something guy. Uh, we went for a walk, talked for a while. Uh, this, we'll call this uh, partner of mine Eric. Uh, Eric had an older brother, a couple of years older, who was more than just a family member, but became a best friend, that sacred mix of family and friendship. Uh, when Eric moved away, he and his brother would continue to talk every day, and whenever Eric would return home to visit, they'd get together. Uh, one night, when Eric was back at home, he got a phone call from a mutual friend of his brother asking Eric to go check on his brother because his brother was acting strange that night, so odd. So Eric heads over to find his brother in an absolute stupor, saying strange, odd things. The world was spinning, and Eric didn't know what to do. It turns out as they would process this event, Eric's brother was a multi-year addict to drugs, and Eric didn't know. How could Eric not know? What could Eric have done? How could Eric have helped? He wondered with me. As he was rehearsing that evening with his brother, I asked it, where did you experience God in all of this? And he, and he said to me, when, when my brother was spinning and shouting and saying all these strange things, I noticed he was holding, grasping, clutching a figure, an object on that sad night in our family's life. It was a statue of Jesus. Eric, looking back, reflecting, in the midst of the chaos, in the midst of the swirling world, in the midst of the pain and the disorientation, holding on to Jesus, in a watching world spiraling in chaos, swirling in pain, someone needs to point to, the, to, to Christ to Jesus, the faithful one, the true and faithful witness, announcing God, not just to separate God from others, but because God is for you and every other version will leave you disappointed. Where's your heart, is the question. What do you love, I'm wondering. We point to Christ. We turn to Christ. We rest in him. Where's your heart? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Christ, the faithful one, in the midst of our stumbling and tripping and confiding in that which cannot fulfill, Christ stands ready, Christ stays present. If you believe Jesus is Lord and acknowledge him as Savior, you're welcome to come to this table, however you've prepared it in your own place. If you're not at that space in life and faith, if you've got questions about this whole thing, for a number of reasons, choose not to partake. I'd love to hear your story. You can email me, John, J-O-N, at PillarChurch.com. I'd love to share some of mine and hear some of your story. For those who do feast today, come to Christ, the faithful one who meets you here.